Well, Stephen Charnock, I've referred to him quite a bit in this series. He's a 17th century English pastor, theologian, author of a big fat book called The Existence and the Attributes of God. Charnock calls the goodness of God the captain attribute, the captain attribute, by which he means it's the attribute that is the source which leads, which directs the other attributes. So, like, another way to put this would be to say that when it comes to the ethical attributes of God, what are called the ethical attributes, things like love, grace, patience, mercy, when it comes to those attributes, goodness, goodness has a certain foundational role. It has a certain ethical priority in the way we think about God. Now, it may seem that we make claims like this for nearly every attribute, And there's some truth to that. Right? There's some truth to that because God is one. Because he is simple and he's not composed of parts. Because he is his attributes. There's a good deal of overlap. There's a good deal of interpenetration in the way scripture speaks of the attributes. So when we say something like goodness has a foundational role, we just mean that it's often the thing that's appealed to in the scriptures to show us God's character, to show us his moral nature, even his essence. So through the the lens or the, the prism of goodness, we can learn. We can peer into God as he is in himself, in his own being, and God as he is in his outer works. Psalm 1.9 puts this very succinctly, very beautifully. It says, God is good. There's his being. And he does good. There's his works. Right? God is good. God does good. And so we want to look at this topic under three headings. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. God's goodness, common goodness, saving goodness. So... First, then, God's goodness. God is good. The emphasis on is. Goodness is not a quality that God has. It's his essence. Scripture repeatedly affirms this essential goodness. Right here, the references are almost endless, right? Psalm 34, taste and see, the Lord is good. Our opening hymn from Psalm 100, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Psalm 25, good and upright is the Lord. There's a slew of Psalms. Psalm 106, Psalm 107, Psalm 136, which all say, give thanks to the Lord For he is good. I don't think we're often aware that we're actually praising God for what he is when we say these things. It's praise of God's essential being in himself. God, then, is perfectly, infinitely, eternally, unchangeably good. That's good news. The good news starts in the being of God. This is the root of what we call the good news. He is goodness itself. 
And that means he's the source of all other goodness. And thus the tradition speaks of God himself as the summum bonum, the highest good, the greatest good. There are lots of goods in the world. God himself is the highest and the greatest good. So let's try for a minute to define this goodness. There's a lot of ways traditionally this has been done, but you could start by saying negatively, it means there is in God no malice. There's no cruelty in God. There's no viciousness in God. God is not snide or condescending. There's no undue harshness in God. There's no injustice in God. There's not a shred of moral evil or ugliness in God. He is light, right? And in him there is no darkness at all. Stated positively, though, when we speak of God being good, we mean he is kind. It would be easy to show the synonymous relationship between his goodness and his kindness. We mean he's kind, he's gentle, he's gracious, he's generous. We'll come back to this. There's a certain bounty or beneficence, a kind of tender, caring disposition toward all his creatures. And in addition to this, when we speak of God as good, we're saying there's a sweetness. There is a loveliness to God's being. And here it's important to note that the idea of the goodness of God and the various ways that that term is used in Scripture, there are multiple words for good in Scripture, but they indicate that this goodness is both moral, God is ethically good, but it's also aesthetic, God is beautiful. God is resplendent in his being. Right? Like you might say, so-and-so is a good person, you mean they're morally good. When you say that's a good painting, though, you're not making a a statement about the morality of the painting. You're saying it's aesthetically, it's visually beautiful. And often, when we speak of goodness, we're bleeding these things together, right? You might speak of a good book. Probably should mean it's morally wonderful and also well-written, aesthetically good. So goodness is not just that God is ethically pure, it is that, but it's that he's beautiful. Right? Aquinas used to say beauty requires three things, proportion, integrity, and radiance. There's a certain splendor to it. So God is good in both of these senses in the fullest, infinite, most perfect way. So unique is God and his goodness. This is really a shocking scripture text, although Jesus is probably being provocative, right? When someone says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What kind of, that's a shocking statement. There's only one who is good, Jesus says, It's almost as if all other goodness vanishes. But our Lord's point, besides probably provoking the question about whether he's God or not, 
Our Lord's point is that God alone, God alone is intrinsically, essentially good. Right? God alone is essentially lovely. All other things, all other beings are good or beautiful by participating in his goodness. There is no independent goodness in the cosmos. There's no spark of goodness or beauty anywhere of which he is not the source. Whether it's the goodness of a person or a plant or a food or a sunny day or an athlete or a tool, it's good because it partakes of God's goodness in a creaturely way. And thus we can see God's goodness play in 10,000 places if we have eyes to see it. Charnock puts this in a, in a much more delightful way. He says this. He says, God contains in himself the sweetness of all other goods. And he holds in his bosom plentifully what creatures have in their natures sparingly. He holds in his bosom plentifully what creatures have in their nature sparingly. And thus, then, we reason. And when we're reasoning, we we move from effects in the world. This apple is good. That painting is good. That person is good. We move from effects back to the cause. At least we should, right? We move from limited goods, creaturely goods, that we see in the creation, and we move back to God. This is an instinct we should develop, right? We move back to God. We tend to not actually trace these things back. We tend to say, well, there's two things. God is good, and then this thing over here is good, and maybe they're connected somehow. No, but this goodness is participation. It's given in a living, full way by God himself. So we always trace things back to the fountain, which is God's own personal goodness. And so Charnock, again, he says this, if the sparkling glory... Of the visible heavens delight us, right? And they should delight us. If the sparkling glory of the visible heavens delight us, and the beauty and bounty of the earth please us and refresh us, what should be the language of our souls to those views and those tastes but that of the psalmist? And here he quotes Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon the earth that I can desire besides thee. No greater good, he says, can possibly be desired than God. But notice this, he says, and no lesser good should ardently be desired. So this straightens out our souls, which tend to get disordered, right? Two things to note about this remark, right? He affirms, to reiterate, that we move from the creation back to the creator, right? We move from these creaturely gifts back to the giver, right? From the starry heavens and the beauty of the earth back to the source. Secondly, notice this. This means that to not recognize that the created order is a pointer, right? The created order is something like a sacrament, pointing away from itself to God. To fail to recognize this and to have one's affections terminate on created things, which is 
our want, right? To ardently desire the lesser goods, even though they be goods, is idolatry. This is how important this tracing back is, right? To ardently desire lesser goods, even though they be goods, is idolatry. So a robust doctrine of who God is in his goodness, in his loveliness and beauty, what what that will do is it will shrink all other loves down and all other concerns so that we see them right. Why obsess over secondary goods when you have access to the summum bonum, the chief and supreme good of all other goods? We love these other things, to be sure. But we love God in and above and beyond all these other things. So one one final thing here on the supreme importance of God's intrinsic goodness. Again, we're not even addressed the question of God being good to us yet. We would all agree, I think, that God is intrinsically glorious, right? God is glorious, and that glory... That splendor of his being is of cardinal importance to understanding who he is. Yet you might remember this. In Exodus, when Moses is pleading with God, show me your glory. Here's what God says to him. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord. God's goodness is his glory, is his name, is his very godness. God is good. So secondly then, let's look at how this God, who is good, does good. We'll do this by first looking at what I've called here common goodness. It is, we have said, part of of this goodness to include generosity or beneficence. The good God, who stands in need of nothing, freely desires to share his goodness, to diffuse it, to spread it abroad, to have it overflow and abound to creatures. This was not necessary at all. He doesn't need it for his blessedness or happiness. But he does it. It's part of the nature of true goodness. Even Aristotle said the nature of the good is to diffuse itself. There is no goodness, right, that's shrunk up and turned in on itself. Goodness is a diffusing, spreading kind of virtue. And thus God, who is good, creates. Right? Being itself is the chief sign of God's goodness. And when he creates, this is goodness overflowing. You see this. Throughout the the creation account, right? In Genesis 1, God does something and he looks and he says, that's good. Does it again? That's good. That's the diffusion of my bounty. And at the end, having created man in his image, male and female, he looks at it and he says, now that's very good. And indeed it is. It's an Edenic paradise. Right? And the Genesis narrative describes it, Eden, as a place where the trees are both pleasing to the sight, 
There's the beauty or the aesthetic dimension of goodness and good for food. It's another thing about goodness, by the way. We've talked about moral goodness. We've talked about the beauty of the good. But it's also useful. An apple is good because it's good for you. It's, It's got a use. It has utility. And Genesis acknowledges this when it says the trees are both pleasing to the sight and good, good for food. So God makes this world, right? And God himself says it's structurally, physically, visibly pleasing. Not only that, it serves you, right? It's useful to you. It's good for man. Right? Paul tells Timothy, everything created by God is good. Right? So this is a life-affirming doctrine. That God is good and that the creation is good. Right? It sets us apart from all ideologies which think that nature or creation or embodied being is somehow evil or tainted. And this goodness, even after the fall, it remains visible. Right? Psalm 119 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 says the same thing. The whole created order shows you God's divine nature. The creation points beyond itself then to the consonance, the radiance, the luminosity, the order, the splendor, the goodness of God. But it's not like a one-time thing, right? The goodness is continually poured out. It's abundantly, perpetually diffused as God sustains and orders the creation in his providence. So the goodness we're talking about now is shown to all, shown to all people, all. That's why we call it common grace. It's not saving grace. It's a common manifestation of God's plentiful goodness to all his creatures. Someone sent me a picture a week or so ago of someone standing in line. I think it was in an airport, and they were going up, you know, to get to order a drink. And the place they were ordering the drink from was called the Common Grace Coffee Company. I texted the person back. I said, I'm pretty sure we can, we can, we can be confident Calvinists are running this little business right here. <laughs> right? That's a beautiful statement. Right? Coffee is part of this common goodness. Their company is part of this common goodness. All coffee companies are Common Grace Coffee Companies. All companies are Common Grace Companies. Right? All companies are common grace companies. That's a fantastic name for your business, by the way. One of the best business names I've ever seen. The Common Grace Coffee Company. So the field for common grace is wide. It's wide. The whole created realm of human beings and animals and things is the theater to us of God's incessant goodness. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. Not most gifts, every good and perfect gift. And Jesus speaks of this common goodness. You might have heard it in the gospel lesson. He draws challenging Ethical implications from it. Love your enemies. 
Pray for those who persecute you, so that you might be sons of your Father in heaven. For, Jesus says, here's the reason. He's kind to ungrateful people and to evil people. He shows this common goodness. They serve everybody at the Common Grace Coffee Company. There's no moral bar to jump over. Right? God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He even makes, Jesus says, his son to shine on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Sunshine and rain, then, all the goods, we call these things goods, right? The goods of life, marriage, children, shelter, food, sun, rain, etc. God spreads them abroad. Not everybody gets the same amount. That's true. That's inscrutable to us, perhaps. But nevertheless, God's goodness is promiscuous. It's indiscriminate. It's common. It's lavished on the whole creation. It would be different if we were God. Here's Paul preaching in Acts 14. He says this. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. I wonder how God, I wonder how God witnessed, left a witness to himself, to the nations. Here's what Paul says he did. He gave rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It's a common universal witness of God to the world. And later in Athens, Paul says, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything. Now, I'm no mathematician, but everything is a lot of things, right? It's too many things to delineate in one sermon. The goodness of God, then, is not miserly. He doesn't hoard it. Right? He doesn't keep track of it. He just gives it away. Psalm 65 is one of my favorite psalms. It has a very lovely, very rich description of this goodness in the way God governs the world. Just listen to this. Just enjoy it. You visit the earth. This is a visitation of God to the world. You visit the earth and water it. That's why rain is so delightful. It's God visiting. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and they sing together for joy. Right? The psalmist sees the stuff that we, because of our sort of scientific consumer, you know, pragmatic mindset, just see as, well, it's going to be hot today. You know, that, you know. He sees the creation as alive. Singing and dancing with the goodness of God. Put more simply, from Psalm 145, which was our opening, our our Old Testament text, the Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. And this all, it turns out, includes the animal kingdom. Right A little bit later in the psalm, it says, the eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Every living thing. 
Now, I'm no mathematician, but that's a lot of things. Every living thing is a recipient of God's goodness. Think about that. Every living thing. No matter how desperate its circumstances might be, no matter how deflected we might be by other attendant things in that living thing situation, every living thing is a recipient of this goodness. He feeds the birds of the air, clothes the flowers of the field, and Jesus draws out from this profound teaching about our anxieties. Right? This goodness is there for you to celebrate, but it's also instructive, right? See the, the Father's common goodness? Love your enemies. That's God loving his. You see the Father's common beauty in clothing the, the flowers of the field? Don't be anxious. So Psalm 104 says, All creatures look to God to give them their food in due season. When he gives it to them, they gather it up. When he opens his hands, they are filled with good things. That's common goodness. It's abundant. It's often overlooked. We take it for granted. We should not. It is extended to every, every creature. So finally then, let's look at God's saving goodness. And this is an aspect of his providence. God's providence rules all things, but it extends in a special manner, our confession say, to the church Right? And he, just, he takes care of the church, our confessions say, and disposes all things to its good. Right? You all know the famous text in Romans 8 where Paul says, all things work together for, notice this, good for those who are called according to his purpose. So here, in all the trials and all the afflictions and all the things that don't appear to be good, in all the malicious intent of other people, perhaps, like Joseph's brothers had toward him, God means these things for your good. Always. All things, all the time, work together for the good of the people of God. It's an aspect of his goodness, even. His long-suffering patience, his kindness, which leads us to repentance, Paul says. Right? It's goodness that leads us to repentance. And then Jesus shepherds you. And what's the fundamental quality he has as your pastor, as your shepherd? He's the good shepherd. And his goodness and his mercy, they follow us all the days of our lives. And thus there are promises. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You lack no good thing. No good thing does he uphold from those who walk uprightly. All then of the goodness of God, rooted in his being, seen, poured out, diffused, tasted since the beginning of the world, points forward to what the book of Hebrews calls the good things that have come. Finally, then this goodness diffused throughout the cosmos is distilled, to change the metaphor. What was diffused is now distilled and condensed into one person. Goodness becomes flesh in Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, who Acts tells us went about doing good. We saw this in the New Testament lesson from Paul this morning, a remarkable text from Titus, 
Listen to the, what Paul says there. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to this abundant mercy. It is the goodness of God, our Savior, which has appeared in Jesus Christ, which saves us, which pours out the most excellent gift of the Spirit. This goodness, beloved, exceeds God's goodness in creation. This is the infinite goodness of God incarnate. And this goodness comes at, unlike the common goodness, this goodness comes at agonizing, unspeakable cost. This is goodness that will be bruised and crushed. This is beauty that will be disfigured and killed for your sake, for my sake. It's an astonishing thing that in the incarnation, God shows us his goodness. He shows greater goodness to us, I should say, than he does for a time to his son. He shows greater goodness to us than he does for a time to his son. And ultimately, it's this goodness which restores us to life and ultimately to glory. To the glory that Adam and the creation would have enjoyed. Finally, it restores us to full, unveiled communion with God himself, who is goodness. The one in whom we can rest. So, from God's goodness, through his goodness, unto his goodness, are all things. And thus we are called. We're called to be imitators of God, are we not in scripture? You know what that means for you and me? You are to be good. That means interior transformation. You are to do good. That means fruit of the Spirit and good works. And so Paul exhorts the church, right? He says, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we'll reap, he says, if we don't give up. While we have opportunity, he says, let us do good to all men. That's an imitation of your divine Father. While you have the opportunity, spread the goodness around especially to those who are the household of the faith. That's where goodness begins. With all these commands in the New Testament to love, to forgive, to forbear, to show kindness and patience to the saints. Right? That's your charge. That's your calling because you want to hear on that great day, well done, good and faithful servant. God is good, and he does good, and in short, you are to be good and to be zealous for good works. So let's receive the good creation, the good gifts, and especially the supreme gift of the good shepherd. Let's receive them with gratitude. Let's heed Peter's call to live beautiful lives. And finally, let us trace every particle of this goodness Back to God himself, the fountain of all good. And thus join with the psalmist in saying, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Amen. Amen. Amen.